This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Today, I will finally get to some listener mail. I've been mentioning it for the past several episodes, and I've had these pieces of paper on my desk in front of me for quite a while now. Finally, we get to it. Before I get into the emails, messages that I've received from listeners, and before I discuss self-love, I want to remind you that if you want to get in touch with me, feel free to drop me an email at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc, and I'll be glad to reply and and continue conversations with you if there's any way that I can be of a help to you. So the first email is an exchange that I had with a listener who is actually the daughter of a good friend of mine. I will say that it's quite encouraging to receive notes from a younger generation, people that are serious about the things of God and are aware that this world culture is not the kingdom of God and that God's ways are completely different from this world's ways. There's a scripture that says, keep fighting the good fight. And I think right now, in our times, one of the good fights is to fight hard to be in the world, but not of the world. And that God calls his people out of this world system. And actually, that's been the theme of quite a few conversations. And I, and I have a couple of recordings ready to go. I need to edit them down that are also on the same theme. So if you've been listening to me for a while, you'll remember that I mentioned that the word love does not occur in the book of Acts. I really don't remember if somebody told me this or if I just discovered it myself. Now, I want to give correct attribution when I can. So surely somebody else told me this. But it's remarkable that when the church was being planted, when the gospel was being preached, the word love is not mentioned at all in that book of Acts. So my listener writes, I'll quote, and I'll be making comments in between, so I'll try to make it clear what is her voice and what is my voice. So this is what she writes. I've been helped by the true point that the book of Acts doesn't mention love, even as an epic story of the church spreading. It seems as though amidst our attempts at compassion, the Western church has forgotten the reality of those who are not in the fold. They are enemies of God. His first invitation to them is to repent, which then once accepted, leads them into the secure, unconditional, eternal love of God. This is Mike now saying amen to that. God's first invitation is to repent. I'll say again, I've said it many times, that the word repentance can carry kind of a negative theological burden with it, that people think the word repentance is churchy or stuffy. And the Greek word is metanoia, meta meaning new or different, and noia meaning mind. And to repent is to have a new mind, is to think differently. And it's even there in the English, sort of. We have a word in English to be pensive is to think, and to repent is to rethink. It's not just feeling sorry for what you've done, it's also saying, I am wrong, I am so wrong, and I need to think about things differently. I have to have a completely different mind. I have to have a mind that is other than my own. 
Well, let's continue with what the writer has sent to me. Uh, She continues, I see my church and my own heart really torn apart by what's happening in Afghanistan. Now, let me make a note here. This was written when the United States of America was withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, and for several days there, there was a real humanitarian disaster unfolding, and bombs going off and people being left behind. It's really, really terrible. And even as I record this, it is um, shocking, the things that people are facing in Afghanistan. But she's writing that right at that time. She says, I'll continue, My own heart is really torn apart by what's happening in Afghanistan. My typical prayers for the lost and the suffering in the world are getting turned on their heads by the truth mentioned above. And here I'll say that the truth she's referring to is that people that are outside of the kingdom of God are enemies of God, and God invites people to repent. So I'll read that sentence again with that in mind. She says, My typical prayers for the lost and the suffering in the world are getting turned on their heads by the truth mentioned above. I'm not sure how to see such suffering of so many innocent people, likely because the, quote, God loves everyone, unquote, theology cheapens the truth and paralyzes us in the face of such tragedy. Trusting his holiness shows his trustworthiness and taking a step back to see his grace that chose to save any one of us has been helpful to reorient my perspective. Uh, She finishes up that email with, I have no conclusions or summarized thoughts, but I wanted to share what I'm processing based on some of your words, a renewed look at Scripture, and a prayer for this dire situation. Amen. I really do appreciate her saying I have no conclusions or summarized thoughts, because a lot of times we just process things. And we don't have perfect clarity. We don't really have understanding. But we know that there's some different perspective that's coming. And we're working through it. So I really appreciate that. Her words about repentance and perishing uh, people that are enemies of God who have not yet repented. It made me think about Luke chapter 13. And this is something that happened with Jesus, a conversation that he had. I'll read it. And let's keep in mind what my listener has written about prayers for the suffering of so many. Now, there were some who were present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know exactly what that refers to, but apparently there were some Jews that were in the temple area, and in some way Pilate shed their blood and then mixed their blood in with the sacrifices that they were making. That's horrible. Whatever happened there, that is really terrible. It could be that they were making a sacrifice and then soldiers came in and shed their blood right there on the altar and killed them. We don't know, but it's terrible. It's Galileans, some people from up north, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And then Jesus answered this, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. If we think that people are basically good and basically innocent, then what Jesus is saying here 
is completely lacking in compassion. However, if human beings are on the path to death already and actually already dead in the eyes of God, spiritually dead and needing to be born again, then this is very compassionate for Jesus to say this. Do we think those people in Afghanistan were worse sinners? Well, we don't think that. But Jesus says to anyone who hears my voice, unless you repent, you too will perish. Isn't that something? There were 18 who died when a tower fell on them. Apparently this was a tower that was there in Jerusalem that fell. We don't know exactly what happened if they were constructing it and it fell on them, but 18 people who were just doing their jobs, and then they die. And, of course, some people could say, well, they must have done something terrible to deserve such a thing. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. That suffering comes to everyone. Actually, everyone is going to perish unless that person repents. This is what the Lord says to you and to me. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Isn't that shocking? As I said, if people are already poisoned and moving into death, then it's a kind and compassionate God that would tell them that. It would not be compassionate at all to say to such person who has not yet repented, God loves you. He has a great plan for your life. You keep doing what you're doing because God is pleased with you. Uh, that's a different gospel, honestly. That's not what Jesus said. And as a follower of Jesus, I need to say what he said, as hard as it may be, because it's a brutal truth. Uh, well, I replied. I think I'll just read my reply, and then she replied back to me after that. There is much to process, and so very much is beyond our understanding. I take comfort that God promises justice, a day of judgment when all is set right. He alone is the one worthy of judging the world. Yes, our hearts are broken for the suffering that we see. God weeps with those who weep. So let's allow him to break our hearts open so that our hearts will grow bigger and be more like his. And then I tell this story. I guess I'll, I'll read the way I wrote it. Um, I don't think I've shared this story on the podcast. I remember a friend of mine speaking to a pimp in the streets of St. Petersburg. I'll give a little background. Our church did a lot of outreach on the streets, and many of the young people would go out and witness to the prostitutes downtown. At one time, a bunch of the young ladies from church were arrested with the prostitutes and ended up in, in a Russian jail, and they started witnessing to the jailers, and they were praising God that they had been arrested and had the opportunity to do some prison ministry. These young, fearless women out in the middle of the night witnessing the gospel to people on the streets. Well, a friend of mine, Victor, met this pimp. He was out with the crew, and the pimp came up and was getting on the Christians for uh, blocking business, right? They're talking to the girls, and so they're not making money, so the pimp comes up, and he's managing these girls, and he tells Victor they got to get out of the way or he's going to cause trouble. And my friend Victor did not say, God loves you and has a plan for your life. Rather, what Victor did say was this, Brother, you need to repent because God is not pleased with your life. Well, I tell you, that really stood out to me, that Victor would speak that true, hard, 
loving call to repentance and not a soft expression of a fuzzy love which demands nothing. You remember on the day of Pentecost when Peter gives that great sermon and explains to the people what's going on, what they're witnessing. When he speaks the truth, not ever once mentioning love, the people that hear are cut to the heart. And they say, what must we do to be saved? What do we need to do? The gospel comes and it touches people. And they say, well, what can I do? What must I do? And if you say to somebody, God loves you the way you are, he loves you unconditionally, you keep doing what you're doing, that's not a call to change at all. Well, she replied, one last little thing here that I'll read. She replied to me and she said, God's first message, being one of repentance, certainly shapes my prayers for the lost. However, I see the same misdirected show of God's love when it's used to bat away guilt and delay repentance within the church. The Christian culture of people my age quickly touts, no condemnation, that's our banner, while forgetting that godly grief leads to repentance. Yeah, amen. If you're listening on a podcast player, go back 30 seconds and listen to that again. It's really good. The Christian culture of people my age quickly touts, quote, no condemnation, unquote, as our banner while forgetting that, quote, godly grief leads to repentance, unquote. I think I've been saying for a year that I'll do a, a sermon series or a talk about the kindness and the severity of God. In the book of Romans, Paul mentions that, and he tells the Roman believers to consider then the kindness and the severity of God. And I believe the fear of God is missing in church life today, and yet the fear of God has always been a part of what it is to live a righteous life with the Lord. Even though we're secure in him, and we know that he loves his people dearly, he is an awesome God. He is a consuming fire, and he doesn't show favoritism. So that's what Paul is talking about, I think, when he says to consider God's kindness, but also his severity. So please remind me about that topic. It's one of many that I've got on my list. Okay, we'll go on to another email that I received from a, a good friend. Uh, a while ago, I think I may have mentioned it here, it's the same young lady who wrote to me and said, that she and her husband are trying to be Christians who live in America rather than being American Christians. And I thought that was a really good insight. Wherever you are, whatever culture you're in, um, take that to heart. Okay, so anyway, she writes, and this is in reference to one of my prophetic recordings. You can go back and listen. They're called As He Leads. And if you haven't heard those, that's when I just turn on the microphone and record whatever the Lord puts on my heart. And I had a vision a while ago of somebody who was swimming out in the middle of the water. The idea and the feeling that I had was that as this person was swimming, they were actually getting stronger, even though the circumstances seemed helpless. There was no place to stop and rest, stand up, take a break. The water itself was supporting the weight of this person, and it as they swam, they got stronger so that when they got to the shore, instead of arriving worn out, they actually were strengthened and stronger when they got up out of the water. At least that's the way I remember it. I may need to go back and listen to it too. Anyway, she says, 
Also, in this podcast with prophetic words, one of those has been very meaningful to me, the one about swimming. I'm with the kids all day, no child care, no school, and the homeschool curriculum was back-ordered, so we haven't done that yet. So she's a homeschooling mom. And some weeks it feels pretty relentless. I found that word very encouraging. Thank you for sharing. And I say amen to that. Encouragement is a mark of a prophetic word in the New Testament. Amen. And she continues, I've also sent episodes to friends recently. A quick browse of recent Christian books reveals that everyone wants to write something new and controversial. I think you were spot on with the ancient paths. Well, that's encouraging to me, too. And really, I hope I don't ever say anything that is original. I hope what I can say is something that's fresh, uh, relates some ancient truths in a fresh way, in a meaningful way, a real living way, but nothing new. Goodness, uh, why would I want to do that? So uh, thank you very much for writing that. It's very encouraging. All right, I'm going to turn aside a little bit from listener mail here and talk about something that I read, and I'll tell a little story about this too. Now we're moving into this theme of self-love that I mentioned, uh, I think it was in the last episode or the one before that. So this was written by a college student, and she wrote a newsletter for the church bulletin. And what she wrote was a little confusing to me. It was a mixed bag, and that's what I'm going to point out. And I certainly don't say this to be condemning at all, but I want to shine a light on this line of thinking that is so prevalent in Western culture, for sure, and to hopefully shine a light and drive it out of our thinking because it's not scriptural and it's not godly, but it gets so mixed up in the teachings of the church. All right, so this young student writes, During my last fall semester, I took a break to better myself. I spent a lot of time with God, listening for His plan and hearing Him tell me about myself. I firmly believe that He desires for me to love myself the way He loves me. Then a little bit later on, she writes, I had allowed people and my need to please them to become the center of my life the driving thing that my life revolved around, God gently reminded me that he should be the only person or thing in my center, that my life should revolve around him and his plan for me. Making God my center was the best thing I ever did. God lit my heart with the passion I had for so long fervently sought after. I understood what it meant to be on fire for God, to love him so much that he became an intimate part of my life and to want that for every person that I loved. Well, so those of you who know me can see the mixed bag that we have going on here. I firmly agree with her that we should not be the center of our lives, or she says, I had allowed people and my need to please them to become the center of my life. Yep, that happens a lot, for sure, and that's not godly. And God reminded her that he should be the center of her life. Amen. I say amen to that. I've thought about that quite a bit recently, that we're born, we walk this earth, and it just feels like everything around us is revolving around us, like we're the center of our little universe, our little life on earth. And what Jesus says so many different ways is, take yourself out of the center of your life. 
and put God in the center. You know, we get our life and our being and our purpose and our place from him and where he is. However, I'll return to what she wrote. This sentence, I firmly believe that he desires for me to love myself the way he loves me. And honestly, my first thought is, where did she get that teaching? And where was it said so often and so strong that she firmly believes that? There's a couple of thoughts I have about it. First of all, what does it mean to love myself the way God loves me? That I would lay down my life for myself? It kind of doesn't make any sense. Uh, That I would consider my own needs above my own needs? (laughs) So in one way, it's nonsensical to say that God wants me to love myself the way that he loves me. Uh, That's actually impossible. Perhaps she doesn't really mean love. Perhaps she means that he wants her to accept herself the way that he accepts her. But even there, I have a few concerns. What do you really mean by that? Because, as we've been saying, the first call, the first way to step into the kingdom is to realize that we've got to be different than we are. And so he does love us so much that he lays down his life for us. He does show his love in that way. There's a price that's paid. A very, very expensive price is paid for that acceptance. For God to accept us takes the death of Jesus. Remember, God does not forgive sin unless it's been paid for. And that's something that we often forget. As I read what this young lady wrote, it reminded me of a conversation that I had a few years ago. My wife and I were visiting a seminary here in the United States. A friend of ours was studying there, and we stayed at the guest house that's right next to the campus of the seminary. And there was a young lady there who was taking care. She was the hostess living there at the guest house and just taking care of things, kind of like a bed and breakfast. And she had recently been on the mission field somewhere in Central America. I can't remember the name. And she she got chewed up and spit out. And I have seen a lot of missionaries get chewed up and spit out. If any of you are sort of in that burnout stage, uh, feel free to contact me. Because I've been there. Man, I know how hard it can be. You know, some of the places where I serve are hard. Really, really hard. And I've been through the grinder And praise God, by his grace, I've come out of it the other side. But I've seen some people who didn't come out so well. And so she came off the mission field, having been wounded, and actually primarily by problems with the other missionaries in country, uh, which is also, sadly, very sadly, not an uncommon issue. And so she was going to counseling with one of the professors there at the seminary. And as I could hear her pain as she recounted all these problems that she'd had, and boy, I'm just so familiar with it. And I know the way out of it. The way out of it is to die to self. The way out of that is to surrender to God more and more. He says, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for me, then you'll find it. And when we're wounded, we really want to save our lives. We want to bring things into our lives that bring us comfort And anything that is not God is a false comfort. And that's really not the way out of it. And as I was sharing some things about that with her, she was nodding her head, and I thought that we were in agreement. And then she said, yes, 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 
as I was talking about self-denial and, and laying our lives down for God and letting him do the work that he's going to do in us, that we don't do this work on our own. It's his power at work in us. She said, yes, yes. And we must embrace the deep self-love that Jesus so often talked about. That's what she said. And it's emblazoned in my memory. She said, we must embrace the deep self-love that Jesus so often talked about. It shocked me, honestly. It shocked me when she said that. Because I thought we were tracking, and she saw no contradiction between selflessness and self-love. She was being counseled by a seminary professor to embrace the deep self-love that Jesus so often talked about. And, of course, one thought is, when did Jesus ever, ever talk about the necessity of deep self-love, much less often talking about it? Well, there's a lesson here. Tell you what, my friends, we need to know the Scriptures. We don't need to be reading books about what other people think the Bible says. We need to know the Bible, and we need to submit ourselves to it. Because she was in submission to a counselor who was giving her ungodly advice, unscriptural advice. Oh, my goodness, there's a lot that can be said about that, and I hope I'm not offending any of my listeners. I told this story to a friend of mine. Uh, He's a pastor of a church. I've known him for many years. I told him this story, and I got to the point where I said, what she said, we must embrace the deep self-love that Jesus so often talked about. And he nodded his head and said, yeah, amen, amen. And I thought, wow, I thought I knew this guy well. You know, he's been preaching. He's a good guy, a loving pastor. But somehow this language of self-love and that that's a necessary precursor to being a disciple, somehow that has gotten into the culture, deep into the culture, deep into the church. And that's wrong. It's just wrong. Jesus says, if you don't change, you're going to perish. He doesn't say you need to love yourself more so that then you can be my follower. But that seems to be the lesson that's being shared in seminaries and in pulpits, many places. Boy, it sounds nice. Self-love sounds really nice, and especially in a hedonistic and sentimental culture like Western culture. Amen. Well, we got to fight against this. All right, so I'll finish up with an email I received from a young man. And he writes, Such an encouragement to be pointed back to the Scripture, to what God actually said. I hope my life is based on His words and led by His Spirit. Amen. That's encouraging to me. And boy, it puts into a couple of sentences what I hope for all of us. Get pointed back to the Scripture, what God actually has revealed about Himself and that our lives would be based on what he says, and not only that, by his Spirit, that indwelling Spirit, the New Covenant Spirit. Amen. Okay, so now he continues. This is where we get into self-love. The minute I saw the title of this YouTube video, I knew I had to send it to you. I laughed and felt sad at the same time. It's just such a picture of the world's priorities. And he sent me a screenshot of this YouTube video, and it's actually from 
the New York Times, I think, or the Daily Telegraph. Yeah, it's the New York Times. So it's uh, not some small outfit or just one guy. It's from the New York Times. And it's called Party for One. And there's a picture of a, a man holding a small wedding cake, like a three-tier wedding cake with a little bouquet or something stuck on the side. And it's the title of it is How to Make a Wedding Cake for One, and then in parentheses, Because It's Important to Love Yourself. That's the video. And behind him, over his left shoulder, you see a picture of that wedding cake. You don't get an idea of the scale of it. It's pretty small. And on top of that wedding cake is a solitary groom all by himself. Now, I want to be careful because I don't want to be mocking. And as my listener said, I laughed and felt sad at the same time. It's really a sad thing to see people on this path. Jesus says there's a broad path that leads to destruction, and many people follow it. And there's a narrow path, and only a few find that one, a narrow path that leads to life. And when we see something like this, we have to remember that this is that broad path. It's not just something funny. It is a matter of eternal life and death. And I thought about the imagery here. Make a wedding cake for one? Does that mean that you marry yourself in some way? You pledge to die for yourself? for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. And that image of a solitary groom up on top of this cake all by himself, and that's something that you smile about, that you embrace, that you encourage other people to do. Because when you're encouraging everyone in a culture to love themselves first, you just get a bunch of selfish people, and that's a recipe for disaster in any culture at the family level, at the work level, at school, anywhere. If you have just a bunch of selfish people, of course there's going to be wreckage, cultural wreckage. I saw a little sign, I think it, I can't remember where I saw it. It's a photograph of a name tag, like the kind you get when you go to a conference. It's printed with the word hello, and then there's a little area where you can write in your name. You could say, like, my name is Mike or whatever. But in this one it says, hello, and then written in that little area in pen, says, I'm in the mood to live unapologetically, love myself, and prioritize my inner peace. Well, that's another example of the self-love being broadcast and advertised uh, over social media. Here's another one that I saw. I was reading a news site, and there are little advertisements that pop up. And this was, well, I'll read what it says, and then I'll explain exactly what they're doing. Had a picture, of course, of a very beautiful young lady. And it says prioritize self-care with luxurious loungewear. (laughs) That was the advertisement. So this model is basically in in very luxurious pajamas. It's a company that is selling pajamas. It wants you to buy their product. It's marketing. And what is the marketing slogan? What are they telling us to do? And what will we do if we can just buy their product? Well, it's prioritizing self-care with this luxurious loungewear. Yes, I'm worth it. If I'm going to really care for myself, I need to have some luxurious loungewear. Well, that's another example. I read an article not too long ago. I couldn't find it. I think it was from an author from the New York Times. It was in the local paper. I couldn't find it online. And it was an article that talked about loving yourself. And the idea was that we have to love ourselves first. 
And an image of that is we have to put our mask on first before we put it on others. Most of you have probably been in an airplane and had the little safety presentation made. Some of you may not have been on an airliner. When an airliner is up high and there's a problem, an oxygen mask will drop out of the ceiling in front of every seat because very quickly, if you're at high altitude, there's not enough oxygen to live on. You only have a few seconds, maybe 15 or 30 seconds, before you pass out from lack of oxygen. So the mask will drop, and they always say, if you're riding with a child, put your mask on first so that you've got oxygen, and then put the mask on the child, because the child will have a harder time reaching it and getting it put on themselves. So put your mask on first, and then you'll be safe and able to put the mask on the person next to you. So this was one of the lines of argument of this article about self-love, how important it is to love ourselves. Put your mask on first before putting it on others. And when I read it, I thought, you know, that sounds kind of like a persuasive argument there. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, if I'm not in good shape, then how can I be in good enough shape to help somebody else? Well, I thought about it a little more, and I just I realized where the, the flaw is in this thinking. Somebody decides when the mask drops. If there's an emergency on an airliner, somebody who really knows the severity of the situation decides to drop those masks. That's not my decision at all. So this idea that we need to love ourselves all through life so that we can put the mask on others once we're safe and sound, well, that really takes God completely out of the situation and puts me in charge of deciding when that mask needs to drop or when this dire emergency situation is. It really doesn't line up because put the mask on yourself so you can help others, but the mask only drops when there's a life-threatening situation. It's not normal, and yet they seem to be saying that it is normal to love yourself. And Of course, Jesus says the way to be healthy, and the way to help others is self-denial. That's amazing, isn't it, that it would be so contrary to our human nature? It's not self-denial for the purpose of self-denial. It's denying ourselves for the sake of Christ. Remember, he had three conditions for his disciples. Deny yourself, first thing. Take up your cross. Follow me. Those three things are the way that we will be able to help others in these dire emergency situations. And that's every day. So we need to really keep our eyes open, just like my listener did, for these subtle or not-so-subtle exhortations to self-love, self-care, self-esteem. It's all through the culture. And a part of my role, I think, is just to encourage anyone who listens to me don't buy into that garbage because that is the path of death. It feels good. It makes me think of when people have described almost dying from freezing to death, that you just want to go to sleep, and it feels so good to go to sleep. But if you sleep, you die. When you're freezing, you have to stay awake. And it's kind of like that. It just feels so good to love ourselves but if we love ourselves, we die. we got to wake up. <laughs> we just can't be drawn into that trap that is set for us. It's a spiritual trap. And many people are deceived. And let's try not to let it into our conversation or in the church. 
My goodness, we need to preach the truth of a living God who speaks what is true and what is right. His ways are the right ways, and they're very often the exact opposite ways of the world. So in all this, my purpose isn't to beat anyone down or to say that you should never be blessed or rested. My purpose is to encourage you to draw closer to that source of life, to drink from that eternal water, and then receive the abundant life that comes only from abiding in the Lord. He is the source of life, and there is no other. Well, friends, thank you very much for listening to this. I'm glad that I finally got to talk about some of the emails that I've received from listeners. And again, I invite you, if you want to write to me, please feel free to drop a line. We can be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. And until the next time, I pray that you will continue to seek out the ways of God. Amen. I pray that you will continually die to yourself, that you'll deny yourself, that you'll take up your cross, and that you'll follow him. And in closing, a thought comes to mind that I hadn't prepared to say, but I think God wants people to hear this. One of the great messages that is repeated so often through the scriptures, in the New Testament particularly, is fear not. And the Lord says to you, fear not, for I am with you. Amen. Amen.